What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankiewicz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankiewicz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankiewicz. Mank. Mank. Mank is the latest from director David Fincher, a biopic about the Citizen Kane screenwriter. It comes to Netflix on December 4th. This has been a very unusual movie year, but a new Fincher. Josh, it's always something to look forward to. Of course it is. This week on the show, a few other things that we're looking forward to. It's our fall-ish movie preview. Lots more than just Mank coming up. Plus, Julie Dash's 1991 film Daughters of the Dust, our overlooked auteurs marathon finale. That and more, and please don't say Mank again. Mank! Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. Our overlooked auteurs marathon, it has been, no surprise really, hugely rewarding this does tend to happen with our marathons. We're filling in cinematic blind spots, and we didn't make any mistakes with this one. Six women filmmakers whose work we were in badly need of catching up with. At least one, Josh, maybe two or three masterpieces in the bunch. It depends who's doing the rating, because while I like all of these films, including the one we're going to talk about, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust from 1991, I'm not the one who's just dropping five-star ratings left and right all over Letterboxd like you are, I may lose the title officially here, Art House Adam. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I don't know if there's any danger of that happening. But yeah, I'm going to be throwing the M word around a lot, possibly irresponsibly, when we get to our awards section for the marathon, Adam. Can't wait. We will get to those awards and that review of Dash's film later in the show. Our podcast listeners, at least Josh, will get to hear those marathon ending awards. The Burnt Potatoes, we're calling them. And if you are one of the radio listeners who misses that part and are curious how it all played out, you can go to filmspotting.net and click on marathons at the top of the page. You will see our picks for our favorite performances, scenes, and films from the marathon. Josh is going to have a very tough time picking between those three M words. Indeed. First though, Adam, let's pretend that everything is normal and indulge in a film spotting tradition, our fall movie preview. Yeah, our fall-ish, as you said there in the opening, because in normal times, we would do this preview really the first week of September. We'd be looking ahead to the movies coming out in October and November. We would cut it off at Thanksgiving. And with everything being completely upside down, we skipped that preview, and we're going to give it to you now, looking beyond Thanksgiving, winter through the holidays. So looking at some of those big Thanksgiving releases and Christmas releases and everything in between. We do like to spotlight movies that are not necessarily the ones that would appear on most lists of the most anticipated movies of the year. Movies like Mank probably isn't going to come up for either of us, Josh, in terms of these questions, or am I wrong? Did you find a way to work it into your top five? I mean, as an honorable mention, I do have a question about it, but no, the other titles that I want to highlight are mostly, I wouldn't say totally under the radar, but a couple of these are pretty small. Um, And yeah, we are, as we like to do, 
going to form these as questions, things we're curious about rather than just picking five titles. I know you like that, Adam, because you usually try to squeeze in about three or four titles per pick. I don't know well, if that's going to be the case this year because we're <laughs> there's not the deluge of releases that we usually get. So we'll see. Oh, it's the case. Okay. <laughs> Can't wait for that. My number five question, is George Clooney director DOA? Mm. Now, just off the top of your head, Adam, how many films do you think George Clooney has directed? I think he has made at least four. I'm going to say he's made five, not counting his new one. Okay, not bad. Yeah, six altogether if you do count this new one, which is called The Midnight Sky. It's coming to Netflix on December 23. And that number, I think I would have instinctively guessed maybe four, something like that. Six is a lot of films for someone to direct. And so this surprised me because I was pretty excited about him as a director at the start. Huge fan of his debut, 2002's Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. That one starred Sam Rockwell. And along with most people, I really do like his follow-up, the TV news junkie drama, Good Night and Good Luck. I feel like that was maybe the high point in terms of reception for his directorial efforts. Now, even though I did like those. I never saw his period football comedy, Leatherheads. I never saw The Ides of March. I really disliked The Monuments Men. And I didn't even see 2017's dark comedy, Suburbicon. That one starred Matt Damon. So for me, at least, hearing Clooney is directing something again, it's not exciting. It's more like, oh, he's still doing that? Like, that's still something that he's up to. Now, The Midnight Sky, it's another left turn for him in terms of subject matter. You can see from those titles, he kind of jumps all over the place. Here, Clooney actually stars also. He plays a lonely scientist in a post-apocalyptic Arctic who's trying to stop a crew of astronauts from returning to Earth. This is Ether. Does any one copy? We're not receiving anything. That puts our last contact with mission control at... Three weeks. Why is it so quiet? That's either. It's a spaceship that we hoped would be our future. I have to warn them about the conditions on Earth. Now, maybe we'll see. This will turn into the sort of Netflix zeitgeist grabber that puts Clooney back on the directorial map. The premise, I will say, at least has me interested. I'm always a sucker for a good sci-fi premise. So we'll see. That's The Midnight Sky. And again, it's going to be on Netflix December 23. Yeah, looking back at those titles, like you, I enjoyed Confessions and Good Night and Good Luck, though I didn't love Confessions as much as you did, and I don't think I loved Good Night and Good Luck as much as most of the world did. Skipped Leatherheads, and then The Ides of March, I just thought was terrible. Actually reviewed Mm. here on the show, and I disliked it so much that by the time Monuments Men and Suburbicon were coming out, I wasn't really interested. And that's despite Suburbicon having a really great cast and a pretty great plot synopsis, at least one that got me curious. And yet there was something about it. And I think it was some of that residual stink, if you will, of Ides of March that just had me uninterested. So I guess I'm questioning Clooney's instincts a little bit as a critic here and a viewer. But I, like you, am intrigued by the midnight sky. Okay, Josh, with my number five question of the fall-ish movie season, I'm going to give you only one title. Don't get used to it. And (laughs) it will probably surprise you, actually, but we're not getting the new Bond this year. That might be more upsetting to some listeners more than others, some critics more than others. We're not getting a new Indiana Jones movie, but we are maybe getting the closest thing to an animated equivalent 
of those two wrapped into one. My question is, will Lupin the third, the first, steal the animation fan hearts of the Kempenars and successfully relaunch our family movie nights? You are familiar with Lupin the third, Josh, I know, because like the Kempenars, the Larsons did a Miyazaki marathon. Actually, did you guys do the entire Studio Ghibli? Yeah, and it wasn't quite, it was almost more over the years. It was just Miyazaki that we kind of checked them off our list as we went, not in a compacted couple of months. But yeah, we have seen all the Miyazaki together. Got it. So earlier in quarantine, over the course of, you know, 11 weeks or so, we did dive into every Miyazaki film and a few more Studio Ghibli films. We still do have some homework to do. This film is Miyazaki. It's his first though it actually isn't technically a Studio Ghibli movie. But I mentioned the Bond aspect. You've got this thief who is a gentleman thief based on a popular manga character. And part of the plot line of this film involves them being in Nazi-occupied France. And there's an archaeologist named Professor Brisson who entrusts his diary to someone, Josh. So it's feeling very kind of Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, which is just fine with me. This one comes from G-Kids. They handle North American distribution for all the Ghibli films. They produce and distribute their own animated films. Of course, some great titles there on their roster. And I reference The Castle of Cagliostro from 1979. That's the title that was Miyazaki's debut. And if you look at most Miyazaki rankings, it comes in in last place. And that's probably fair, Josh. It's fairly unsophisticated from an animation standpoint, feels kind of more traditional and old school, and it definitely doesn't have the same wild imagination that we would all identify with other Miyazaki films like Howl's Moving Castle or Castle in the Sky or even Porco Rosso, another earlier one that I really love. There are some fairly conventional genre elements here, but there are real pleasures to be found here as well, including the opening car chase to Cagliostro, the final showdown that takes place inside and outside the clock tower. And when we got to this film, and we didn't go in order, so we saved it for near the end. We wanted to get to the more acclaimed Miyazaki titles first, and I was all prepared, Josh, for kind of a letdown and thinking, well, this is just a step on the way to Miyazaki becoming who he became, a master. And that's kind of true. I understand why IndieWire in one of their recent rankings of his work said that it's disposable in a way none of his other films really are, but they said it's still a remarkably entertaining 100 minutes. And that's definitely the experience that I had along with all of my kids a few months back, Josh. So we're excited to see another Lupin, the third movie, this one directed by Takashi Yamazaki, has several film credits going back to 2000, but none that I've seen. And by the time this comes out on digital, December 15th, my son Holden will be on Christmas break back from school and we'll actually be able to reunite, get the whole family back together downstairs. We haven't had movie night since he left. It just didn't feel right. So once everyone's back together, Holden's here. This might be the first movie we watch together. Yeah, I think Cagliostro is is a lot of fun. Um, you know, he's working with the pre-existing material, as you mentioned there. So I think there's sort of that limitation, but there are also, mm -hmm. it's fun in its own right, but then some glimmers of the vision that you know will come. So so yeah, I'm glad that there is another one in this series coming out. I have um, an animation-related question myself. I, I could just bump it up here because rankings aren't so important, but it, it was my number one. So we'll get to that a little bit later. I'll get to my number four now, and that is, 
will the truffle hunters do for truffles what Honeyland did for honey? <laughs> so I don't think the 2019 documentary Honeyland, uh, a Golden Brick finalist, I don't think it really did anything for honey, but bear with me here, okay? Like that documentary, which followed this solitary beekeeper in a deserted Macedonian village, Truffle Hunters explores an ancient way of food gathering that's closely tied to the earth. And then from the looks of it, it considers how this tradition still manages to exist and maybe how it might not exist for very long in the modern world. The directors here are Michael Dweck and Gregory Keyshawn, and they follow older hunters and their dogs in the forests of northern Italy, where they're trying to sniff out these Alba truffles. IndieWire, I have a quote from them as well, Adam, here for the truffle hunters, describes it as a blend of lyrical imagery, flashes of deadpan comedy, and a fairy tale setting. So Honeyland was, you know, really something special. Uh, it, It merged sort of documentary and fiction in an intriguing way. I don't know if Truffle Hunters will do that, but it's a subject matter that's compelling to me. Love to see this corner of the world and how people have been living there for so long. So I'll be looking forward to that. It's coming to select theaters on Christmas Day, uh, and I imagine will be available elsewhere digitally after that. Okay, well, I'm a sucker like most of the food-eating world for truffles, and that's really... All I needed to hear, you had me at truffles, Josh. My number four question of the fall-ish movie season is, who will I most wish I could be stuck longer with? Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown. That's One Night in Miami. Martha and Franklin from Small Axe, Lover's Rock. Or the friend and family of Happiest Season. So, Josh, I've combined here three movies that all stood out to me as being similar in one way, at least. And that is, they're all movies that confine us with their main characters to a single location, mostly, from what I can gather, and confined to a single day or night. I have talked about the first film, One Night in Miami, before. It was one of the films I was most anticipating that played at the Chicago International Film Festival. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see it as part of the fest, but it is about the one night in Miami back in 1964 when Muhammad Ali had just come off beating Sonny Liston and became heavyweight champion of the world, and those three African-American titans all came to celebrate with him. We see some of that in the movie Ali, the Michael Mann film, and this is a fictionalized account of that evening, directed by first-time director here, the great actress Regina King. Small Axe is part of an anthology film series, and it is actually going to play on TV. It's going to premiere November 15th here on BBC One in the UK, and then it's going to hit Amazon Prime on November 20th for us here in the States. But All five of these films revolve around London's West Indian culture, and it's created by Steve McQueen, of course, the great director of 12 Years a Slave, Hunger, and Shame. This one, Lover's Rock, is all about a single night at a house party in 1980s West London and this burgeoning romantic relationship that takes place between two characters, Martha and Franklin. Our friend Odie Henderson, who writes for RogerEber.com, he's been on the show before. He says this about Lover's Rock. In a way, director-slash-co-writer Steve McQueen's opus evokes August Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle, which is also a multi-work narrative of blacks dealing with life throughout the 20th century. But unlike Wilson, 
who composed his unforgettable melodies with words, McQueen uses the screen as his canvas, delivering powerful, rich images that propel the story along. Lover's Rock is a delectable feast for the senses, not unlike that large pot of curry goat being fussed over on the stove by the songstresses. The viewer is not only a fly on the wall at this party, they are also on the dance floor being carried along as the music moves them. So maybe, Josh, I'm just in a little bit of a quarantine spirit here. I can't get out of it that I'm looking forward to kind of being confined with these characters in these places. And there is one more, which is this film Happiest Season, which I did see described in a headline today as the Kristen Stewart lesbian rom-com. And it does star Stewart along with Mackenzie Davis, a very talented young actress like Regina King. It's from a first-time director and longtime actress, Clea Duvall, who also co-wrote it. And her story, which I believe, if I read right, is based on her own personal experiences, is about a young woman who knows she's going to dinner at her family's annual holiday party, and she has a plan to propose to her girlfriend, but discovers that her partner has pretty conservative parents and actually hasn't come out yet to them. So as I understand it, a movie that mostly does take place all around that holiday party. Happiest Season comes out around Thanksgiving. I think it's coming out on Hulu, Josh. If my information is correct, Lovers Rock, as I said, around the same time, November 20th on Amazon Prime, and then One Night in Miami is slated for a Christmas release. Well, yeah, and Lovers Rock, when it started showing up at a couple of festivals about a month or so ago, really did get a lot of raves. So we're big fans of Steve McQueen, so I'm definitely looking forward to that one for sure. All right, number three for me, can I handle yet another dementia movie? Now, two of my favorite films of the year, Dick Johnson is Dead and the Australian horror film Relic, they've both dealt in very different ways, both very successful ways uh, with this difficult topic. Now we're getting The Father. This stars Anthony Hopkins in the title role, a man struggling with his fading memory. And from the plot synopses I've seen, he's being a little less playful about it than Dick Johnson (laughs) is with his daughter, Kirsten. Yes. Now here... The queen herself, Olivia Coleman, plays his daughter. So for me, that's another huge draw for a lot of people, I would imagine. And another reason why, you know, with her Oscar, with Hopkins getting an Oscar, this one is being looked at as sort of a traditional awards favorite type of movie. So if you want to, you know, just pretend like this is a normal year and we're getting deluge with these type of prestige movies full of Oscar winners, then The Father might be for you. The director here is Francis Florian Zeller, and he actually based the movie on his 2012 play. So I'm unfamiliar with that play, um, but it does have that pedigree. Maybe gives you some sense of what you'll be getting here with The Father. And true to the Oscar path, it's going to get a December 18 limited theatrical release and... Who knows what December will look like, but maybe moving out to other theaters, other cities from there. We'll have to see. Dad, I'd like you to meet Laura. How oh, do you do, sir? I say you're gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> I must say he's charming. Yeah, not always. Laura has come round to help you. I don't need her or anyone else. I can manage very well on my own. Everything all right? Who are you? Actually, it's me, Paul. Who? I live here. What is this nonsense? Yeah, The Father will come up later on my list, Josh. My number three movie question of the fall slash winter movie season is, will Zappa be the rousing, competently made 70s rock god exploration that Stardust almost surely will not be? Or will I have to seek my music fix in Sound of Metal? 
I was thinking about my introduction today, Josh, to Frank Zappa, who I don't think there's ever been a movie made about, at least not one that I'm familiar with. And it came like so many of the movies I discovered via my best friend since first grade, Matt, and his uncle, who was a guy who kind of passed down all this wisdom and all these great artists to him. And Matt said, you got to read the Frank Zappa book, the real Frank Zappa book, his autobiography that was published in the late 80s. And I barely knew anything about him. I just thought, you know, yeah, he's that eccentric rock musician who doesn't have any hit songs that I could come up with at the time. I only knew him as the father of the two children and actually had four, but two with those very notable names, Dweezil and Moon Unit. And that was it. That was really it. And then I got the real Frank Zappa book. And we were recently, Josh, talking on our bonus show for our patrons about formative political movies. Well, the real Frank Zappa book would definitely qualify for me as a formative political text. And I said it came out in 89. It's a product of its time. There's definitely a lot of actual politics in it. At the end, there's a chapter called Practical Conservatism that has sections on national defense, Star Wars, Central America, Nancy's War on Drugs. So if you just want to get wow. taken right back to the Reagan era, <laughs> right, Josh? It's all there. PTSD also, there. He talks about censorship a lot. He did testify before Congress about censorship and putting those warning labels on records back in the 80s. But Zappa, as I discovered and started listening to his music was just this pure iconoclast, right? Combining elements of rock and jazz and orchestral music. He was a virtuoso guitarist and composer who did have ideas about music and everything else that were provocative and somewhat revolutionary and somewhat controversial, even if in some cases I'd say the ideas were pretty simple and common sense. I dusted it off today, Josh, and there's a section on raising children. And he says this about raising his four kids. To the extent that it is practical, we share with them our personal philosophies and attempt to impart to them what we like and what we don't like so that we at least have some basis for understanding each other. But in the final analysis, we realize that they are organisms unto themselves. Whatever they're going to do in life, they're going to do regardless of home instruction. And earlier he says, they may not have verbal skills or manual skills yet, but that is no reason to treat them like they're inferior little lumps whose destiny it is to grow up to be inferior big lumps. <laughs> like you, <laughs> which is, of course, really well said. And it's not mind-blowing at all, or at least it shouldn't be. But I think you'd agree that's not actually how most of us approach raising our kids. It's definitely not the American model of child raising, and it probably should be. So there's a lot of guidance there in the Real Frank Zappa book, and now we get a documentary about Zappa from Alex Winter. Yes, Bill S. Preston himself from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He's Made a lot of stuff over the years as a director, some shorts, been involved with TV, a couple doc features, including one I watched this year on HBO that was really good called Showbiz Kids. And as you know, music docs are my jam. Like, even if I don't really like the musician in question or I'm not a big fan, I'll sit down and watch almost every music doc that comes my way. But I will say, Josh, I've gotten bored lately with some music docs particularly, but with some documentaries in general. Because we're just seeing a lot of the same techniques being applied, the very polished, animated recreations of things, mm. mixed with this sense of getting a book report. And Zappa demands something more demanding, <laughs> let me put it that way, or at least a little uh, less conventional and boring. But you know what, Josh? Even if it's not, even if it's pretty straightforward, it can't be as bad 
as what the David Bowie biopic looks like. Mm. Clearly you don't capitalizing. Have, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> I know, on Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman, which, I don't know, you never even saw Rocketman, right? Like, your hatred for biopics is so strong. I don't think you saw either of those, did you? I, no, I haven't seen either of them. I, I, and I would say the musical biopics are particularly egregious right. in this category. <laughs> yeah, and... Look, I'll say it. Yes, Rocket Man is a far superior picture to Bohemian Rhapsody, but I'm not particularly excited about either of them. And I'll say this having watched the Stardust trailer only because, Josh, it popped up on Twitter. And one night when it appeared, everybody in my timeline seemed to be talking about it. And I thought, well, it can't be that bad, right? It just can't be that terrible. And then I watched it. You want to know why it's not working? If anyone dares to ask you about your actual work, you just do the mystical mime act. There is no authentic me. It's just fear. Well then, be someone else. Be someone else. I only needed about 17 seconds, honestly, to see just how terrible it probably is going to be. I'm sorry that I'm judging the trailer, but especially when we have this track record of bad musical biopics long before Bohemian Rhapsody even to go off of, I can on one hand appreciate that it seems to focus mostly just on a Ziggy Stardust character. So it just takes a certain moment in time with Bowie and doesn't try to tell the entire story. It's all about his U.S. tour in 1971, and it's not about his whole life, even though you know, of course, it's going to go back to the past and try to mine it for all of these secrets that explain exactly who David Bowie would go on to be. But when you hear lines in the trailer like, be someone else, as advice that he takes that unlocks his whole persona and his whole approach to music and his success and him actually verbalizing, I want to take my fantasies on stage with me. Just these horribly trite epiphanies that sell short the work of David Bowie, the process of becoming David Bowie, the genius of David Bowie. How do you package David Bowie into those easily digestible nuggets? I don't know if I can do it, Josh. I might just skip past Stardust and get some more music in my life via cinema with Sound of Metal, which is the Riz Ahmed film, great actor playing a metal drummer who is losing his hearing and really has to struggle to completely reinvent himself as someone who can't define himself around the music that he makes. And I'm not suggesting that the movie is going to take on any of these traits at all, but if you watch the trailer, there's almost a little bit of a horror element to some of it. The terror that comes with the disorientation he's feeling by not being able to hear anymore and the ringing that precedes that and you get that sense that he is he's truly disconnected from his surroundings in a way that is really harrowing and of course you think about horror and how important sound design is to it so i'm interested in seeing some of those techniques in sound of metal that comes out in limited release on november 20th it's going to hit amazon prime on december 4th stardust if if you really love Bowie and somehow you're drawn to this and you are a glutton for punishment, that comes out November 25th, though I'm not sure it's set in stone. And you do have the Zappa doc to look forward to on demand Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, the, the Zappa doc sounds promising. Sound of Metal is a work of fiction, um, is intriguing. Yeah. Stardust, yeah, if, if you catch up with it, you let me know how that is, okay? <laughs> All <laughs> right, my do. number two question. Will Steven Ewan make it a trifecta with Minari? 
Now, Ewan was on a feature film role there in 2018. He had a supporting part in Sorry to Bother You and I guess was supporting, but uh, a more prominent role in Burning. Uh, He hasn't been on the big screen since, though. That's going to change with the arrival of Minari. Now, this played at Sundance this year, and since then, it's been getting lots of good word of mouth, including from friends of the show, Jeffrey Overstreet, Alyssa Wilkinson. I know they've both praised it. Ewan plays one half of an immigrant Korean couple who move with their young kids to start a farm in Arkansas. This takes place in the 1980s. Here's Alyssa writing about it at Vox. It's both a family drama through the eyes of a Korean-American boy and a moving tale of love and loss in the American heartland, exquisitely told. So I'm intrigued just by that perspective. The writer-director here is Lee Isaac Chung. And as I said, very excited about a a true, a full lead performance from Steven Yeun. There's Mm -hmm. no set date for Minari, uh, but A24, they released a trailer. I think this came out late September and are they're somewhat positioning it as well for award season. So it sounds like we will get it sometime this winter. That's Minari. Yeah, that's another one that popped up on my radar doing this research as well. Great pick. My number two has to be read in the voice of your favorite documentary film prof. And in this case, it's going to sound like me, Josh. <laughs> okay. Compare slash contrast Steve James's City So Real and Frederick Wiseman's City Hall presentation of local politics. Mm -hmm. What are the unique and common challenges between Chicago and Boston? How do the esteemed documentarians approach and express these challenges in similar or different ways? Does either provide a more hopeful view of civic engagement? So, Josh, if you just see the Wiseman, you've already seen the James you can knock this homework out. I'm expecting eight to 10 pages at least. Oh, yeah. That's, that. you know, that's one night of writing. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, for you, it might be you're such a pro. But obviously, these two political films are coming at a really raw time as we're taping this, Josh. Let's just say we feel like we're maybe getting close to some clarity. But does anybody really feel like we have a grasp on any part of the world anymore, especially Politics. I definitely don't. And maybe this one is resonating with me too, Josh, this topic, because I'm coming off my first experience directly participating in local politics in the election process. My daughter Sophie and I both worked for the first time at our precinct polling place. There was one worker there, Josh, who was younger than me, and there was nobody there as young as Sophie, who is 16. So getting some new blood in there and you know what? I know this was on your mind this week. We were kind of put back in that unfortunate headspace of four years ago where we were doing a live show, a top five in November Mm -hmm. coming off the election. And we did our top five movies that console and restore hope. And my number five was the Ridley Scott film, The Martian, starring Matt Damon, because I talked about how this is a character who couldn't be in more of an impossible situation, right? And instead of just folding up the tent, he just starts trying to solve things one step at a time, right? Just moment to moment, what do I do to stay alive? And he goes from there. And that was kind of my inspiration for, okay, everything feels hopeless. I don't know what I should be doing or what I even can do, but I know I have to do something. And obviously there were some things along the way over these past four years, but this was also a key part for me participating in the election process this year. And who loves process? If you've seen any Frederick Wiseman film more than that filmmaker, right? I'm sure that the movie is going to get into some really major rifts and issues dividing his city. 
including some conflicts along racial lines. And in the trailer, there's a moment where you see two women getting engaged. So some big issues here. But even in the trailer, you see Wiseman's focus on the meetings, the phone calls about course, stray yeah. dogs. Yeah. The potlucks, the parking tickets, the trash collection. It's four hours and 32 minutes, Josh, of democracy in action, in all its excitement. And then you go to City So Real, which, joking aside, probably is, because I haven't seen it, you can tell me, a lot more exciting because it is more about, from what I understand, unrest and real tumult that has obviously gripped the city of Chicago. Over the past few years, the movie opens with the killing of Laquan McDonald and that verdict being announced. And then it includes the aftermath of George Floyd, his murder. And Steve James was editing this right up until the start of the Chicago International Film Festival about a month ago. So it covers COVID. It covers Lori Lightfoot, the first openly LGBT person, the first African-American woman to ever be elected to be the mayor of Chicago. So there's a lot of ground being covered here. And it is five and a half hours of it. So you've got a lot of homework to do to take my essay challenge. But. This one, at least, is broken down into five episodes if you want to approach it that way. But yeah, for me, these two films really stood out, Josh, because you've got two iconic American cities in Boston and Chicago, two iconic documentary filmmakers in Wiseman and James, and they're telling political stories, but that are also personal in the way any subject matter probably is or should be for any documentarian. But James is from Hampton, Virginia originally, but is obviously in terms of his work, synonymous with Chicago and has adopted it as his home. And Wiseman was born in Boston almost 91 years ago. So I can't wait to see both. As I said, you got to set aside some time to really dive into these political worlds. And you can do that right now because as we are coming to you, you can see City Hall available via virtual cinema at the Siskel Film Center. Here, one of our local movie institutions and City So Real, I think recently played on National Geographic. I don't know if it's still there. Maybe you do, but it is available all five episodes right now on Hulu. I would say this about City So Real. It definitely has that sense of topicality and up to the moment suspense and drama you're talking about. So that's there. But it's also I was thinking about Wiseman as I watched it because it's also very immersed in the nitty gritty. I mean, some of the hmm. the most compelling drama comes down to challenges to petition signatures for candidates just to get on the mayoral ballot. So, I mean, you you can't get more minute than that, but there are these right. scenes of people just, you know, from opposing candidates sitting with a judge before a computer and they're challenging each signature one at a time. And the tension there is unreal. And it's capturing exactly that sort of stuff you're talking about that Wiseman captures in so many of his documentaries. So, yeah, this is a great pairing. And it almost, you know, it would be it would only be more perfect if they'd both done the same city. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, just yeah. to kind of compare the styles the true, and the, the nuances. Yeah, the ultimate compare yeah. contrast. Uh, yeah. I mean, you could ask that question, who got it right? But e but even just more like, how do they each kind of approach the similar locales? But this, what we got sounds sure. pretty good too. All right. Are we up to my number one question? I think so. We uh, are. This is the animation one. So jumping off your pick there, Adam, of Lupin the Third, the first. My question is, will Wolfwalkers or Soul overtake Weathering With You as my favorite animated movie of the year. So these were the two that were on my radar, probably probably the two titles among the two I'm most excited 
to see yet this year are these animated efforts. Soul, everyone's probably familiar with, Pixar's latest effort. Pete Docter is the lead creative behind this one. So here's the Pixar titles on his resume. Monsters, Inc., Up, Inside Out, Not Too Bad. Have high hopes for this. It's not exactly... A high concept, though, in the way that many Pixar movies are. Here's how IMDb describes it. A musician who has lost his passion for music is transported out of his body and must find his way back with the help of an infant soul learning about herself. So I'm not even quite sure what that means, but I do trust Doctor. And it's also nice to see that a new voice is being brought into the Pixar fold here. Kemp Powers, who, interestingly, Adam, screenwriter of your earlier pick, One Night in Miami, Kemp Powers is credited here both as the co-screenwriter and the co-director. Now, Wolfwalkers, this has a little bit of a lower profile, but there's definitely pedigree behind this one as well. It comes from Ireland's Cartoon Saloon and director Tom Moore, and they're behind the geometrically dazzling The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. I liked both of those quite a bit. This one is another fantasy rooted in Irish lore. It's about a young hunter who travels with her father from the safety of their city to eradicate the last surviving wolf pack. Wolf, wolf, hunting far in yonder. Forest is brimming with wolves. It's my job to hunt them down, not yours. But we could hunt them together. Wolves, bears, dragons even. (laughs) (laughs) So right now, I would say, Weathering With You, that one's from Japanese filmmaker Makoto Shinkai, and it got a theatrical release way at the start of this year. That has my vote for animated film of 2020, but I could see either one of these moving ahead of it. Soul is going to be on Disney Plus in this strange new world of ours. December 25. Wolfwalkers looks like it is going to get a November 13 release in theaters coming up pretty quickly here. And then on December 11, you'll be able to find it on Apple TV+. Yeah, Wolfwalkers definitely sounds intriguing. And with the Pixar pedigree, I'm really eager to see Soul. And as you said, Josh, the Pete Doctor pedigree, Inside Out, one of my favorite Pixar films, just looked at my ranking over on Letterboxd, and I've got it at number five. My number one fall movie question does concern a film that you already brought up. The question is, which stage adaptation will provide the best showcase for its immensely talented star who seems destined for a Best Actor nomination? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Chadwick Boseman, or The Father, Anthony Hopkins? You already talked about The Father and Anthony Hopkins is one of those actors I hope, Josh, we've properly appreciated over these many decades of his work, and we've lauded him fittingly, and I hope we have many more great performances ahead. But on New Year's Eve, Anthony Hopkins will turn 83 years old. Quite a life. And here in The Father, he plays a man who is 80, as you noted, suffering from dementia. And we see the toll that is taking on his daughter, played by the great Olivia Coleman. Imogen Poots also stars. And yes, we did just experience this. Now, I didn't see Relic, so I have only one film to connect it to. But again, we're getting a daughter's perspective on losing her father to dementia. But yes, playful's the word I had jotted down too. Dick Johnson is dead. A very playful movie. One suited to its subject and its star, Dick Johnson. We talked about it, a guy who just always seems to be smiling at everything. And definitely over the course of the film that we see, doesn't seem to be dealing with his condition 
in a really defiant or angry manner. He sometimes does get very emotional, but he doesn't have outbursts of anger the way we see in the trailer for The Father. We get a very different portrait here. And I will note that, you know, the genius of Anthony Hopkins is if they did a narrative version of Dick Johnson's life, Anthony Hopkins could play Dick Johnson sure. and do it beautifully, right? Of course he could. But also you see some of the traits you probably commonly associate with Hopkins from some of his other roles in the trailer, the kind of bluster and the bravado and a man who seems to be in control. And here we are seeing a portrait of someone who is losing control, losing his grip. And of course, through that process, the vulnerability really comes through. You go from Hopkins in that film, The Father, to Chadwick Boseman. And of course, we all wish we had another 40 years of work to consider. Tragically, we won't get that. And he's here, Josh, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, second reference to August Wilson here in this top five. It's an adaptation of one of his plays. And he's in a showdown, an artistic power struggle as an ambitious trumpet player with Viola Davis. When I got there, they attention. That's when you and Slow Drag come in with the rhythm part, me and Cutler play on the break. Levy, the sooner you understand it and what you say is what my say to count. <laughs> we'll be ready to go in 15 minutes. We'll be ready to go when Madam says we're ready to go, and that's the way it go around here. That's a showdown. I'm Really excited to see, obviously, Bozeman versus Viola Davis. And it just looks like it's going to be a swan song that really will be a great vehicle, a great final vehicle for his talent. Someone, as we touched on when he passed away, who always brought a certain dignity to the characters he was playing, even if maybe the characters in those moments in their lives didn't have a whole lot of it. He gave his characters a real unrelenting determination. And yeah, even if you didn't always like his characters or the decisions they're making, he always made them complex. He brought an interiority to them. He made them three-dimensional, and I expect nothing less out of the character he plays in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That is coming out on Netflix on December 18th, and The Father, as you said, Josh, also December 18th, but looks like it's going to start in limited release in theaters. Yeah, powerhouse cast for both of those, absolutely. And if we were just doing the purely want to see, have to see only maybe two films or three films this fall slash winter. Are we still going to say it's Nomadland, probably the Chloe Zhao film followed by Mank, or do you not put the Fincher that high? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm cooler on Fincher than you. Nomadland, definitely. We've talked about it already so much on the show, uh, including the Chicago International Film Festival preview we did that I didn't throw it on my list, but I would say that is definitely up there for me as the most anticipated. My main question was basically, uh, can David Fincher be funny? Because that trailer, which uh, I did just watch before we did this show, played to me very much like Hail Caesar, like a Coen Brothers kind of quick paced. And maybe this is just how it's edited. You know, it's just the trailer. But even the performances seemed a little heightened. And I know Fincher has done dark comedy, even something yeah. like Fight Club, you could call that, right? Um, but this seemed in a different register. So I'm really curious to see how that plays and and if his, uh, his style is adept at it, if that's what he's going for. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about some of the humor in Fight Club, which we talked about as 
a movie in our nine from 99 series last year. And of course, I would even say there's some really dark humor in Gone Girl. But you're right. A different register is the right way to put it with Mank, one of our most anticipated movies of the next few months. If you would like to see our full list, just go to filmspotting.net and click on lists. Of course, we'd love to hear your picks or any other comments you have about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Massacre Theater, maybe, with some more old-timey voices? That's up next. Plus, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, which has experienced something of a revival in recent years. Thank you, Beyonce. It's also the last film in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon, which wraps up when we come back. Stay with us. Keep your lamp on, keep your lamp on, keep your Night and the stars that hung all around us light the way to your door. Won't you pour me a glass of pure alabaster cone? Sit down by the fire. Days are growing short, nights are growing longer. Gotta get much stronger to make it through. True. Are these hearts that burn? Diane, 11:30 a.m., February 24th, entering the town of Twin Peaks. Five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. As W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. 54 degrees on a slightly overcast day. Oh, Josh, I'm so excited for you. <laughs> I'm excited for myself. <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin there is Special Agent Dale Cooper in the pilot episode of David Lynch's Twin Peaks. That pilot originally aired on Sunday night, April 8th. 1990. And I just went to the closet. I dug out my 1990 TV guy. <laughs> I, I, I'm i a real collector, Josh. Please and, tell me that's a joke. Oh, no. I mean, of course, I've got it all the way back to all the way back to the 80s. And it says here that you were probably watching Murder, She Wrote. I hope it was good because you were not watching the pilot episode of Twin Peaks. I was not, and you think you're making a joke there, but you may be dead on. My, my mom, huge Murder, She Wrote fan. I mean, that was a staple <laughs> in the Larson household. So you might have been watching it. You might have been sitting have on been. the couch. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it was it was more of her thing. But yeah, I might have been in the background. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I would have been in high school, was certainly aware of Twin Peaks, Probably maybe partly it was because I wasn't as aware at that point of Lynch. You know, I know Twin Peaks was a phenomenon, but what might have gotten me more into it is if it had been, you know, like I was just starting to get into the Coen brothers and maybe other filmmakers. If I had been aware of his stature, that might have pulled me in. But yeah, I don't really have a memory of well, making the decision not to watch it. I can't I can't <laughs> offer much of a confession here. And and I truly can't give you any grief, Josh, because I didn't watch it when it was on either. 1990, no, I didn't have any David Lynch familiarity either. I mean, I had seen The Elephant Man 
when I was a kid, but I didn't attach it to any director. And I didn't really discover who David Lynch was until probably just about two years later, at least one year later, when I saw Blue Velvet. And that was one of my formative movies that really turned me into a cinephile. But I had to go backwards and then watch things like Twin Peaks. And it was perfect. By the time I went to college, my first year, I had that box set on VHS, of course, Josh, dating ourselves here a little bit. And we weren't alone because I had seen it, but nobody else saw it when it was on TV that was on my floor. And I brought it there and we we watched it together. We had Twin Peaks night like every night of two weeks and just went through the entire series. So I got to feel important being the guy who had the goods with Twin Peaks. Now, why are we talking about Twin Peaks, the TV show? Well, next week, we are planning to get to our 8 from 84 review of David Lynch's Dune. We do have one more film in this 8 from 84 series coming. We'll get to Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise a few weeks down the road. But we were talking about this along with our producer, Sam, trying to find the right elements to fit into the show schedule. And we thought, why not? You haven't seen the pilot. There was a lot of talk about the recent return of Twin Peaks, which I saw part of. You didn't see any of. Let's at least start the process. Maybe we won't talk about any of it on the show again, but if we're going to talk about Dune, why not go from maybe his least acclaimed work to potentially his most acclaimed work with Twin Peaks? We're going to talk about both on next week's show. Yeah, I like that balance. And uh, as I think you pointed out, it's almost feature length, that pilot. Mm -hmm. Um, So that fits. And it's come up so much. I mean, for the film spotting family members on Patreon who get to suggest ideas for our bonus content, I think at least twice the suggestion has come up. Well, why don't you talk about the Twin Peaks series? And I have to embarrassingly admit yet again that I've not seen it. So this seemed, as you said, like a good opportunity to at least start that process. And um, yeah, we'll we'll see if it's something maybe we continue to do depending on what the movie landscape looks like as we get into the new year. Now, there are some film spotting listeners who occasionally get a little bit cantankerous when we start doing TV spotting instead of film spotting, but they're going to have to make an exception for David Lynch and deal with it because we are definitely going to talk about Twin Peaks, the pilot episode. And if you're like Josh, it's all new to you. Play along. Watch it. We'd love to hear your thoughts after next week's show. Also next week, we will have results from the current film spotting poll, which asks, which of these movie failures do you champion the rigorously determined criteria was it has to be a high profile auteur director taking on an existing property and failing both critically and financially josh the options we gave listeners were brian de palma's bonfire of the vanities lynch's dune steven spielberg's hook ang lee's hulk andrew stanton's john carter tim burton's planet of the apes the wachowskis speed racer or nope they're all bad So maybe just to spite us after complaining so vociferously last week about Hook being in the lead, all the 90s kids out there are voting for Hook. It is still in the lead. Oh, it's embarrassing. That's what that is. (laughs) Moving into second place, though. Nope, they're all bad. Man, (laughs) film spotting listeners aren't usually so negative. Try to find a silver lining in there somewhere, but nope, they're all bad is currently in second. That means we're not going to get to the... Much expected critical reevaluation of John Carter. Sorry, Josh. Mm, It deserves it. I'm telling you. (laughs) You can vote in that poll and leave a comment, which we might feature on next week's show over at filmspotting.net. Hey, Film Spotting. This is Adrian Yelverton in Memphis, Tennessee, with my pick for the best Sean Connery performance. 
I'm a big Connery fan, so it's hard to pick a favorite role. The easy choice is Dr. No, and it's a great Bond film. The Man Who Would Be King is my favorite Connery film, and his chemistry with Michael Caine and his death scene are fantastic. But I would pick another role as his best. Connery always played himself, and he was mainly a movie star. And I think his best movie star performance is in The Hunt for Red October, John McTiernan's 1990 Cold War classic. A six-foot-two Scot should not work as a Russian submariner, but Connery has such presence and conviction that you accept him in the role immediately. The premise is also hard to swallow. A patriotic career Navy officer plans to steal an advanced sub and give it to his mortal enemies, but Connery makes it seem plausible. Sir Sean gets some subtle scenes with Sam Neill and Alec Baldwin, and he gets to display his patented cool under fire and even deliver a few one-liners. Torpedo impact, 20 seconds. What books? Pardon me? What books did you write? I wrote a biography of Admiral Halsey called The Fighting Sailor about uh, naval combat tactics. I know this book. You know, Your conclusions were all wrong, Brian. Ten seconds. All acted stupidly. This is an incredible movie star performance that shows Connery at his best. He will be missed. Thanks, Adam and Josh, and keep up the good work. Thank you for that, Adrian. Yes, Sean Connery did pass away at the age of 90 last weekend. Connery, he hadn't been seen on screen in nearly 20 years. His last performance on the big screen was 2003's The League of extraordinary gentlemen. I'm so glad our producer Sam jotted down some notes here for us, Josh, about Connery's career because I wasn't really in a position to enjoy any of the tributes to him over the past few days. And I realized I'd kind of forgotten about Sean Connery. I thought about him as Bond. And then I thought about him as someone I hadn't seen on screen in a long time. But if you look back at our generation, kids who came of age in the 80s, of course, it wasn't Connery's Bond, first of all, that we connected with. We were we were the Roger Moore generation. Yes. Sadly, to my dismay, many years I would have loudly proclaimed Roger Moore was the best Bond, Adam, unfortunately. Yeah. It was, consider it my hook moment. Okay? I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Apology accepted because I probably also said the same stupid thing at some point. But how about this? I mean, Connery, of course— Professor Henry Jones in The Last Crusade, Mm -hmm. Jim Malone in The Untouchables, Marco Ramius in The Hunt for Red October. I loved all three of those movies as a kid of the 80s, and I still have very fond feelings about all of them. So, yeah, a huge star, a leading man through the 90s when he was in his 60s, Josh. Yeah, I mean, beyond Bond, I I think my favorite Connery roles are the ones you mentioned, you know, Last Crusade. Untouchables, Hunt for Red October. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that he appeared opposite Tippi Hendren in Hitchcock's Marnie. And what was really interesting about that role, he's sort of doubling down on 007's sexism and misogyny. It's a really interesting part. Adrian said there in that voicemail that Connery always played himself. I think that's true, but I'd almost argue that right from the start, he almost seemed to be spoofing himself. You know, he, he had such a distinct outsized persona from the physicality to that accent to the eyebrows, he was so supremely aware of these qualities that were catnip to the camera. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's what made him so fun. You know, all of his performances so fun is he was aware of that. Uh, I'd also suggest if listeners haven't checked out Chris Klemick, friend of the show on Pop Culture Happy Hour, he did a segment for them about Connery shortly after his death. 
I had a lot of good things to say and also mention, you know, the man who would be king as an important part for him with Michael Caine there. That's probably looking at his filmography, the one that I want to catch up with of the stuff that I've missed. Huge blind spot for me. And really sadly and embarrassingly, there are a fair number of Bond blind spots still have definitely seen Dr. No, but don't remember anyway processing ever, if that's the right word to use. 1971's Diamonds Are Forever or when he returned in 83 for Never Say Never Again. It's possible I saw them with my dad when I was really young, you know, when they were on maybe TBS being rerun with some of the more recent Roger Moore vintage films. You know, I've seen Goldfinger for sure, but I know there's at least three of those Connery bonds I still need to catch up with. So R.I.P. Sean Connery. Adam, I want to give one last plug here to the virtual seminar I'm doing on the Royal Tenenbaums, calling it the Royal Tenenbaums Family Tree. This is with the Coolidge Corner Theater in Boston, and it's your last chance to sign up if this sounds good. This is how it works. I've done a video essay slash seminar that is available to those who sign up. You can watch it in advance, revisit the Royal Tenenbaums, and then we'll all get together on November 12th. So coming up quickly here on Zoom for a Q&A discussion about the seminar, about the film, about really anything you want to talk about. So been encouraged that some people have already been signing up. Now is your last chance to do it as we're coming up on that November 12 date. I'm really looking forward to it. So we'll put a link in the show notes as we've been doing for this virtual seminar with the Coolidge Corner Theater. What's Bill Murray's character's name in that movie? Is it Raleigh? Nice. Yeah. Raleigh and Dudley by me. Raleigh and Dudley get some time, some significant time in this seminar, Adam. Well, I'm just picturing Raleigh in my head with his tweed jacket. I imagine that's what you're wearing during these lectures with a pipe. I, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, Adam, but I'm wearing my favorite jacket. I will say that. (laughs) All right. So you came dressed for success over on our sister podcast, the next picture show this week. I don't know, Josh, if you can abide this. Burning Down the House, part mm. one. That's mm. burning B-Y-R. Yeah. I think it's genius. Okay. But well, the caveat to my anti-pun crusade, Adam, goes back to yeah. my newspaper days. I appreciate them in headlines or titles. That that's okay. It's wow. it's conversation. You've given us a lot of thought. It's conversation that gives me the heebie jeebies. Okay. <laughs> Burning Down the House Part 1, it's a title, True Stories, Talking Heads frontman David Byrne, his 1986 directing debut, Next Picture Show, pairing that with Byrne's American Utopia. Our friend Genevieve Kosky writes that both films use the framework of Talking Heads songs to muse about the state of America and how humans seek and find connections in the modern world. You can hear all about those connections if you listen to this pairing of episodes starting with True Stories over at the Next Picture Show. Genevieve, Keith, Scott, and Tasha, their new episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts and more info is available at nextpictureshow.net. You mentioned, Josh, Chris Klemek friend of the show and such a friend of the show he is that he participated in our last trivia spotting event exclusively Mm -hmm. for family members might just have him back on this time as a guest we offer our patrons access to those types of exclusives as well as exclusive audio content you get a bonus episode every month october's was formative political movies and november looks like it's going to be the top five turkeys we love now the last time the listeners voted on a listener nomination that we were a little hesitant about. It did result in formative political movies, which 
I think turned out to be a pretty special bonus episode of film spotting, mm-hmm. maybe just a pretty special episode of film spotting, period. Do you think that magic is going to happen with the top five turkeys we love? Uh, not likely. <laughs> But but I think if we go into <laughs> it, if we go into it with that attitude, who knows what might happen, Adam? Low, lower the bar, I guess. I mean, I have to my advantage, uh, you know, the the archive at LarsonOnFilm.com. Yeah. You watch more junk it's, than me. It's it's turkeys I love. It's all it's all right there. So <laughs> that's that's called the Larson Uvra. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty much ready to go. You're gonna have a little trouble. Yeah, Mister yeah. Mister yeah, we Snobby, were, uh, highly right. selective over what he sees, and yeah, yeah. We were more discerning here at Film Spotting when Sam and I started the show. We said we're only going to give ourselves assignments that we actually want. Well, all those so, years, all those years of being on the daily newspaper reviewing beat, Adam, are finally going to pay off for me. Can't wait. Yeah. So, you know, we may have to do some homework and watch some of the movies that are in our current poll question about some of those high profile efforts that bombed critically and financially. I don't know how we're going to define this because I truly have not seen many objectively bad or let's just say sort of universally maligned films movies that have like a 30 on metacritic yeah i was gonna say or a 10 i haven't seen any of them so i can't even defend them well what was sam's score he he said like 55 or below right i mean that should give you that should give you five sure but there are movies that aren't (laughs) thought of in the same vein and i know a lot of people do adore this film but there are a lot of movies that aren't thought of as like plan nine from outer space level turkeys that have Mm. a 55 you know what i'm saying probably not i think it's going to be a challenge but we're up for it if you'd like to nominate any films we'd love to hear it feedback at filmspotting.net that bonus content coming later here in the month of november and also coming this month in fact next week friday november 13th is trivia spotting for the voyage home can't wait for that All of our patrons, Josh, get access to these exclusives for the low, low price of just $5 a month. Or if you sign up for a year, you get a 10% discount. You get a month free. And I want to highlight some listeners who just over the past few days, Josh, took that option. Ofer, Sherry, Lachlan, Ruth, Barb, Philip upped his donation from $5 a month to over the annual price. And we have a new $5 a month donor in Randy as well. So we thank all of them. And speaking of that formative political movies bonus episode, our last bit of promotion here for our film spotting Patreon comes to us from Jason Montgomery, who lives in Washington, Illinois. And he Josh was on my team for the first trivia spotting Mm. and he did not win. Mm -hmm. And then on the third installment, he was a proud member of the Hubie Halloweeners with Captain Josh Larson. And he did win. Yes, he He did. did win. But, but you know what? He praised you enough as a captain leading him to victory. Now he's got a little bit of praise for me and overall just everything about that bonus episode. I thought, why not go ahead and feature it here? If you're, if you're on the fence, maybe about signing up for Patreon and the benefits that you get, maybe this will put you over the top. Here's Jason. I was listening to October Film Spotting Family Bonus Content, and Adam was talking about his list of formative political movies. He listed all of the reasons at the beginning of the episode as to why this could have been a road exercise, various related lists that had been done on the show over the years. Despite this, Adam dug deep. He shared true vulnerability and discussed his past and current beliefs. I was blown away. It is a fantastic episode where I learned something about me and the hosts. Adam's discussion of capital punishment helped me solve how I feel about the subject myself. Despite the fact that I'm 45, I've never been sure. 
But Adam's thoughts, along with a great movie, Dead Man Walking, helped me to finally know that I don't believe in capital punishment. And this isn't the first time the show has knocked me on my heels. Too many other times to write about. And then it occurs to me, this is why I was so excited to be mentioned on the show. It makes me feel that I am part of something, a community of people that I am proud and honored to interact with. When I sit on trivia spotting, I can't stop smiling and thinking, what a great group of people. Thank you, Adam, Josh, and Sam, as well as all the other contributors and people that make the show go for making this amazing show. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for those really kind words. I know from that experience with Jason on my team that he was one of the key figures who helped carry our effort where we did come up, Josh, just one question short. Mm. So I'm going to say for the record that he probably carried your team as well. Uh, yeah, it was all Jason. Okay. Thank you, Jason, again for that. And thank you to all of our patrons. If you would like to learn more and possibly sign up to be a family member, you can do that at patreon.com slash filmspotting. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. So this is a very popular pack with a many oh. of the fashionable wardings, you know. And this, I just I don't do anymore. And this is fabulous. Oh, oh that <laughs> is incredible. And that's just like the one we saw in the magazine. Mm -hmm. Do you like it, Dad? Well, what is that? Is, is that dollars? Twelve hundred dollars? Beloved my master advice, this is a very reasonable price for a cake of this magnitude. A cake franc is made of flour and water. My first car didn't cost twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> Welcome to the 90s, Mr. Punk. That was Martin Short and Steve Martin in 1991's Father of the Bride. It was written by Nancy Myers based on the screenplay for the 1950 film of the same name. That was written by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. This version was directed by Charles Shire. Also on that show, we did a review of Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks and Josh, your non-recommendation of Borat's subsequent film, along with our overlooked auteurs review of Lena Wertmuller's Seven Beauties. So why that scene? From Father of the Bride, well, Esther Bloom, not a real person, clearly a J.D. Salinger character in New York City, says another father-daughter comedy with an aging but still charismatic patriarch at the center. I think that nails it concisely. Here's Leslie Bell from Lacey, Washington. A connection to this week's episode is the heavily vague European accents of Martin Short's Frank and Sasha Baron Cohen's Borat. Well played, Leslie. Andrew Howell, Lake Oswego, Oregon, says, I knew Josh was doing his best Martin Short, and the hint that tipped me off, we did substitute a name here, was Mr. Naven. That would be Naven Johnson from The Jerk, which still remains one of my favorite Steve Martin movies. My dad and I still quote, and all I need is this paddleball game and this remote control. And this is all I need. I'm, I'm just, it's all flashing back to me, Josh. That's how good the scene is. I can hear Steve Martin's Navin Johnson saying that. That is probably the funniest moment in that film, though. You know what? There are a lot of great quotable, memorable moments in The Jerk. Have you seen it? I have not. I think maybe we should do a blind cow on this one. Maybe we should. It's really hilarious. Not only can I hear that bit perfectly in my head, I always think about a running family joke with my parents, every time the new phone books came, we let out exclamations of joy. The new phone books are here. The new phone books are here. I'm somebody. So lots of good stuff in that Steve Martin classic. We also heard from John Holman. He's in Orange County, California. Knew this one from the word cake. I think I pronounced it cock. 
That's the way only Martin <laughs> Short dare you? could do. Sorry, beep. Maybe we need to bleep that. Pardon you. However, John says Josh did have a slight Gollum impression that may have pushed the word towards the naughty end of the spectrum. Yeah, I'm going to blame it on Gollum, John. Well, you were supposed to leave that up to the imagination, but no, you just you just came out and said it again. Well done. Corey Cogarty, he's in Hershey, Pennsylvania, says, Your impression of Martin Short's Frank Egelhofer was a touch profane, Josh. Yes, but it was also quite passable. Well done. 1991's Father of the Bride is comfort food for my wife and never gets passed by if it pops up while she's flipping through the channels. If the Blu-ray is in the player, however, that is a good indication that she is in need of the familiar and kind-hearted embrace of Frank, Howard, and the entire Banks family. During these past months, the disc has been on heavier than normal rotation, but with this film, that's not totally a bad thing. We feel you, Corey, and of course appreciate all the feedback and all the entries that we get from Massacre Theater. Your impression must have really resonated with people, Josh, because we had a fair number of entries, a fairly brimming film spotting hat. Reach in and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is David McFadden. He's in Berkeley, California. Congratulations, David. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Now you understand the scene. You're not sure if you still love Keith, but you're offering yourself to him in order to save the planet. Look at Jip, right up here. Now we're starting here. Uh-huh. And up okay. and roll set. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. We're gonna change the name. I don't think this is an incredibly obvious scene, though to many hardcore film spotting listeners it might be it's a film that definitely has been talked about a fair amount over the years on this show it has been massacred before though it's been quite some time and the script is definitely deserving and the performances are definitely deserving of well they probably deserve better than what we're going to do to it josh (laughs) well and i'm i'm kind of in the penalty box for my language with frank so yes. I'm going to take I'm going to take the more subdued role this time so I don't get too excited and and say something I shouldn't. We'll give you the more excitable part. We'll see how sure. you do with this. And it is a bit ironic because people who recognize the scene will notice that the actor who by far is usually the more excitable is actually the more subdued one, the one you're playing this time. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, he's he's kind of a big presence, so there's mm-hmm. a little bit of a hint. Yes. And we are going to change the name again, not incredibly obvious, probably if we kept it in, but we'll have some fun with it. We've given your character, Josh, a new name that probably will actually be more of a hint (laughs) than if we had just left it what it was. Probably. Let's go ahead and get to the scene. And I'm going to start it off. I have to get really excitable here. That'll be Mm -hmm. tough for me. (laughs) You're going to give me the action. And action. Why shouldn't we look at ourselves up there? Who cares about the fifth Earl of Bastrop and Lady Higginbottom and and who killed Nigel Grinch Gibbons? I can feel my butt getting sore already. Exactly, Walter. You understand what I'm saying a lot more than these literary types because you're a real man. And I can tell you some stories a couple of years ago. Sure you could. And yet many writers do everything in their power to insulate themselves from the common man, from where they live, from where they trade, from where they fight and love and converse. And and, uh, and naturally their work suffers and regresses into empty formalism. And well, I'm spouting off again. But to put it in your language, the theater becomes as phony as a $3 bill. Well, I guess that's a tragedy right there. And And scene. scene. (laughs) Adam, just feel free to use that line, I'm spouting off again at any point in any show. You know, just keep that in your back pocket. 
I will indeed, Josh. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 16th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. It's 50 years since slavery, Mr. Sneed, but here we still give our children names like my own and I own her. You need her, I adore her, you adore her. <laughs> we even have a peat and repeat. <laughs> Sometimes these islanders name their babies the day of the week or season in which they were born. <laughs> Not to mention everyone has several nicknames. Goober, Boy Rat, Hail, Carvest, Winter, Pigeon. A clip there from the final film and our overlooked auteurs marathon, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust from 1991. It's set in 1902 on one of the sea islands off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. It's a movie about a Gullah family reuniting before some of them migrate to the north. And because of their isolation from the mainland, the Gullah people develop their own Creole language and customs heavily influenced by Central and Western African traditions. Dash's film immerses us in this language and these customs with a narrative that I think you'd agree, Josh, is elliptical. The movie had its debut at the 1991 Sundance Film Festival, where it was a grand jury prize nominee and not a surprise here at all, the winner of Excellence in Cinematography Award for DP Arthur Jaffa. It did have a limited run late in 91 and early 92 and received mostly positive reviews, but it was the film's 25th anniversary re-release in 2016 that brought it a lot more attention, and so did Beyonce's Lemonade. Isn't that the reason? Was Beyonce's Lemonade, Josh, the impetus for you finally seeing Daughters of the Dust? Boy, it might have been. I mean, this was on my to-do list for a long time, um, so I might have actually seen it a little bit before that. But that's certainly kind of what bumped it up on the cultural radar in recent years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the one film in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon that you overlooked but did finally catch up with prior to the start of it and one that, judging from your letterbox review, you were more than happy to see again, even bumped it up a half-star rating. This is a five-star masterpiece for you, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really something. And I think the revisit is crucial to that. I, I'm curious to hear what your experience was with it, Adam, because elliptical is right. I mean, I spent the first viewing of this as much as I enjoyed it trying to get my bearings. And yeah. some of that had to do with the filmmaking style, which is very dreamy. It almost transitions in and out of time in ways that aren't always clear. Visions meld with just real world conversations. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're, ne you're never quite steady in the movie. And that's the purpose, you know, that that's absolutely what, uh, Julie Dash means to do here, but it's still something that has you feeling a little bit adrift when you first enter into it. And so I think what I appreciated that first time around were those aesthetics, the cinematography, yeah. the dreaminess, the performances that sometimes, I mean, Maybe Maya Darren is is a touch point here because some of these sequences are almost experimental dance sequences, mm -hmm. right? And you're enjoying that element of it. 
But the narrative itself, which has that bare bones plot you just described, that it's this family, some of them have left the island, and now they're back for a reunion, trying to convince others to come as well in, in search of progress, as they would put it. And then there's a portion of the family who wants to stay on the island and keep traditions going. That's, that's you know, the, the central narrative. But there are so many characters circling around this with different perspectives on this. And as I said, it goes off to the past as well to consider what their ancestors have experienced that I was a little lost even at the end of the first yeah. viewing. This time, I'll talk about maybe what my experience was and, and why I came to appreciate even more, but I do want to hear kind of what that first viewing was for you first. Well, we almost had identical experiences, so that does make me feel a little bit better because it maybe wasn't the best week for me to detach myself from the real world and try to get lost mm. in this world the way the movie really does require you to do. Of course, you can make the case that it was the perfect time if you could successfully detach yourself to get lost in this world. But I will say that I am really, really eager to see it a second time because I think based on what you've said, when you have that familiarity, when you have some kind of foundation to build off of, then you really can go far beyond just those aesthetic pleasures, which are so numerous and so bountiful that it does make it a rewarding experience. There's no doubt about it. But I wasn't able to fully, to use your word, steady myself and kind of burrow in the way it sounds like you did this second time. And you mentioned it in terms of the simplicity of the story. Ultimately, I mean, I want high stakes and the stakes are so high in this film, even if you aren't following it. Completely, you recognize that we're talking about a way of life vanishing potentially mm -hmm. completely. That's obviously really important. And on a smaller level, you have some characters who are having to make a difficult decision about whether or not they're going to participate in this migration or not. But because it is so poetic in its approach and does dance around in time and with the characters so much, it's hard sometimes to even keep track fully of of which characters are the ones who are trying to make that tough decision. And ultimately, I do appreciate this aspect of the movie, too, that it doesn't give you a lot of footing. It alludes to things or characters mention certain things happening to them or the people they love, the people of this community that the movie doesn't really fill you in on, including we're never told, at least as I recall, Josh, why they're moving. We can mm. read into it. We can maybe understand why they're migrating, but I don't think that part is ever really spelled out, right? Yeah, I, I would think, you know, I mentioned that some of them see it as progress, uh, and I think that is part of it, is because the lifestyle on this island it is really traditional in the terms of there is no sort of technology, even for, you know, 19 or 2 or whatever this is, that has come onto the island. They're still living as if it was, you know, decades earlier. And so mm -hmm. the family members who have left the island are experiencing, you know, whatever new technology is out there. Prosperity is, uh, you know, there's potential for that. But as we yes. learn when we start to hear some of the stories, there's also, you know, the racism they're going to face when they start to move out into the white world. And then interestingly, you know, religion is a part of this because those on the island are more rooted to traditional African traditions and beliefs. Right. And one of the main family members who comes back from the North uh, for this yes. reunion is a dedicated Christian. And so she sees that as, in her world, progress, whereas some of the others see it as assimilating in a way that they right. don't consider healthy. Right. But you really do have to pick up on some of those elements that might be driving that decision because there is one way to look at how they're living as 
an idyllic, idyllic. state. Yes. Yeah. Right? That's and how so some why of them see you, it. Right. And some of them see it that way. So why would you give that up? Mm-hmm. And again, we can see some aspects of life that maybe aren't that way, but overall, that's how it's presented. And the movie doesn't really devote much time to telling you the reasons why they're moving. And that's good, but that is the type of film this is. Yeah. And of course, then you can be a little bit adrift, as you said, Josh, but this is a movie that very clearly is ultimately trying to celebrate and really just document in some ways mm-hmm. the experience yes. and culture of these people, these people who are so firmly products of the ground they walk on and of their time. I mean, there's lots of references to them being brought here against their will, references to slavery, to the end of the Civil War, to freedom. So we know that's part of this, that if they're in any kind of idyllic state now, that's not what they were in just a few decades or so prior to this. But they are also untethered from time and from the rest of the world. I think about Nana Pizant when she is telling Eli, she says, count on those old Africans, Eli. They come to you when you least expect them. They hug you up quick and soft as the warm, sweet wind. Let them old souls come into you hearty-like. So there's always this sense of the past being with them, haunting them in some way, but also providing strength and, and being a foundation for them as they move forward. But there's a present that is constantly informed by this upheaval and a completely unknown future. Yeah, you're absolutely right that the film has value alone as this anthropological document. And obviously it's fiction uh, being made, you know, what, some some 90 years after its setting, but it still has that value of documenting a little explored place and time in American history. Um, so there's that value. The difficulty does arrive, I would agree, especially on the first viewing, of keeping track of the characters. There are so many Mm -hmm. of them, and they each have their own stories. And that was, as far as why it rose in my estimation, why my experience was even stronger the second time, that was what it was, is I I felt I had the bearings, and so the characters really popped. I no longer was trying to position who's related to who and how and you know who was yeah. on the island before who is visiting like those things by the end of the film the first time I had gotten my idea of so now I could just sit and listen to their stories more and not try to piece together the dots and that made it a, a deeply emotional experience really I mean as this one remarkable thing about Daughters of the Dust is you know all of these characters each one has their own history their own reasons for whether they want to stay or move north, their own convictions. And no one's really wrong here, but the movie gives each of them at least one moment to passionately argue for where they stand. Right. Um, And then you grow closer to like what their convictions are born out of and they're born out of their experiences. So you have, you know, I think the most, the dominating figure here is probably Nana Pazant, played by Cora Day, who you mentioned, the matriarch. She's probably the last pure tie to the original African beliefs and traditions that the family has. Then you have someone like Barbara O. Jones playing Yellow Mary, this cousin who returns to the island for a reunion. She's disgraced, like most of the family Unfairly, we come to realize, but sees her as a figure of shame, partly because Mm -hmm. she left what she ended up doing off the island. So you have her perspective. You have uh, Casey Moore as Hagar, this really self-righteous sister-in-law who married into the family, but still carries herself like, you know, 
like she's a matriarch, you know, she's Absolutely. a strong personality. Um, so you get her perspective and then you get, you know, one other person I'll mention, but I will save for our awards, uh, talking more about Alva Rogers as Eula, because that was just one of the performances that really stuck with me the most this time around. And once you know the stories a little more or have the space to sit with them, you get these moments that carry the emotional weight I probably missed the first time. Think about there's another figure here called the unborn child, and this will give mm -hmm. viewers or listeners who haven't seen it a sense of how the movie works. Partly this is narrated by Nana Pazant, and partly it's narrated by this unborn child who Eula is carrying, has not been born yet in the narrative proper, but still appears in the form of a little girl running around um, here and there and will speak on the voiceover. There's a moment where Eli, who you mentioned, is posing with other men to get his photograph taken. The right. photographer looks through the camera and in an instant, the unborn child is kind of like holding Eli's leg, you know, kind of like in a gesture, hoping that he'll be her father. And that, I mean, that's just like once you've been able to carry the stories with you, that carries so much more power than being this sort of intriguing aesthetic touch that it was the yeah. first time. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That probably is the perfect distillation of what you're talking about, the perfect illustration of the way a movie, when you see it again, when you can have that richer, more rewarding experience with it, it it allows you to key in on moments just like that, where for me, that was a remarkable moment. That was a standout scene in the film, but was not really tied to any particular emotional experience. Yeah, it was yeah. it was the trick, if you will, right. the aesthetic trick of it that impressed me or wowed me more than anything. And I do imagine that what you're saying is exactly right, that once you do have your bearings, then you can see it for what it is and you grasp onto things like her grasping onto him. And mm -hmm. you see you see how powerful that can really be. But I will say that I do love those tricks. I do love that aesthetic approach. And I mentioned how untethered these characters are from space and time. The way Dash and Jaffa capture this visually with the sped up frames and the slow motion and that apparition, uh, as you touch on it, the unborn child appearing and disappearing sometimes within those, those sequences. I just thought it was a very effective way to, to capture that, to render this sense of them being completely disconnected from really the rest of the world and sometimes from each other. And you touched on this with the kind of anthropologic aspect or project of the film. I do think, and that's that's the level this first time that I did connect with the most beyond just the visual pleasures of it and the richness of that. I kind of saw myself as a viewer, or I should say, I saw Julie Dash as the filmmaker embarking on a similar project to one of the characters in the film, Mr. Sneed, mm, played by Tommy sure, Hicks, yeah. right? And then we as viewers are the beneficiaries of that, just like the people who are one day going to see his photographs. He comes with Viola to this island. He's a photographer, and he's there to take portraits of all of them before they leave. And this will be then, we understand in the moment, this will be because he understands as a photographer in the moment, the enormity of what he's doing, the significance of what he's doing, that this is the last time anybody will ever see these people in this environment really living their identities and us getting to know their practices and their personalities and their way of life before it's gone. And so I think I think Julie Dash is trying to convey something similar here. And within that, Josh, what I also responded to is the way that at once, if everything we're saying about this project is true, it's mythologizing these characters in this place 
but I love the way she also demythologizes them simultaneously. So we get a key sequence later in the film. This is the one where Eula is really the star. She tells a story and talks about the slaves who got to this island, got to the water and got off the boat and they they walk on water away from it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, just a short time later, we're told emphatically that, you know what, people don't walk on water. That's that's a story. Right. That is just a narrative. And so, you know, we tell each other these stories of our lives and our cultures because it allows us to make sense of our histories and to make sense of ourselves. And I think to move forward. Right. But sometimes in order to move forward, you have to actually reckon with the reality of your past and who you are. And over the course of this movie, we see all of the main characters you mentioned it. They all kind of get their big moment to verbalize this, but that's what all those characters are doing ultimately is, I think, reckoning with their reality, their present and their past in order to actually determine a path forward. We are as two people in one body. The last of the old. What's the new? We will always live this double life here. Because we're from the sea. We came here in chains. And we must survive. We must survive. It's soft water she in me blood. You know, you mentioned the photographs that are being taken, and and that's the through line, too, to this aesthetic choice that Dash makes, where a lot of the scenes, even when the family members aren't posing for a photograph, they're staged as tableaus, you know, where characters, yes. may, I think of the couple on the beach who are just kind of hanging out and regarding each other. Mm-hmm. The photographer is nowhere around, but it's staged as if they are posing, and those those are really beautiful. And I also like the You're technique. Right. It speaks to your point about them being... Um, both out of place and out of time, which I think is absolutely correct. That technique, often it's used when the unborn child appears. It's somewhere between slow motion and normal speed. It just, I don't know what they're doing, but it feels way different than slow motion. It's bewildering, but it's kind of beautiful. And it's completely appropriate for not only who the unborn child is in that scene, but as you're describing for, for all of, all of these people. And I think the other through line for this movie that, that struck me a little bit more this time too, is that, it goes back to that grabbing of his legs, of the unborn child grabbing his legs. Everyone in this movie is seeking that sort of belonging, right? That yeah. that's they're trying to find their place. And the irony, which is tragic for some, beautiful for others, is that they're feeling called to leave the only place they've ever belonged. So, mm-hmm. and this is maybe maybe idyllic isn't the right word that we're using, but I think what we're trying to get to is that this is now in this time frame a safe place whatever, you know, the living style might be. And there's belonging there. And I think that's what Nana Pazant is is trying to emphasize is that what we have here is belonging. If you leave it, that is not guaranteed. Yes. You may get, you know, new clothes or better lodging or whatever it is you're seeking, but you may not be guaranteed the belonging. And I think it's also interesting that this movie ends deliberately still on the shore of the mm-hmm. island. It it doesn't the movie doesn't leave the island, you know, and that's not to condemn the family members who do. Right. But it kind of it, it kind of just reemphasizes the timelessness of the movie, I think. That that's where the movie wants to remain. In this in this ether, this timeless ether. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you can't articulate it while you're watching it the way you just so eloquently did, I think 
you are as a viewer, speaking for myself, obviously, you are as a viewer able to still feel the sense of potential dread, right? The, mm. the suspense, if you will, of this life that is waiting for them. And the fact that we don't ever leave the island and we bring to it all of our own understanding and experience and know that even if things aren't perfect here on the island, and even if they do have more opportunities in some ways, maybe financially, and some of them will thrive, what they may not get is that sense of belonging, yeah. what you just said. And, yeah. and maybe maybe that's enough to make it not not the right move, but also potentially a necessary one. So Daughters of the Dust is available to rent on most platforms and is currently playing on the Criterion channel. Let's wrap it up then, Josh. As we always do, our marathon awards, we have determined these to be the burnt potatoes. We'll hand out our burnt potato awards for our favorite lead and supporting performances, our favorite scenes, our pick for the best subversive moment. That's our unique pick to this marathon and our best picture overall. A quick recap of the movies we looked at in this marathon, three shorts by 40s experimental filmmaker Maya Darren, Meshes of the Afternoon, Atland, and Ritual in Transfigured Time, Ida Lupino's 1953 Noir, The Hitchhiker, Vera Chitlova's Czech New Wave classic Daisies from 1966. We then jumped up to 1970 for actress Barbara Loden's only film as a director, Wanda. Then to 1975 and Chantal Ackerman's slow cinema masterpiece, Jean Dielman, followed by Italian filmmaker Lena Wertmuller's Oscar-nominated Seven Beauties, also from 75. And finally, of course, it all culminated with Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust. Our first category, as it usually is, is Best Supporting Performance. And looking over the films and the casting, I think you could stretch and maybe make a case, Josh, for Alexander Hamid, who appears in two of the Darren shorts. You could look at the Lupino and talk about maybe Frank Lovejoy as Gilbert in The Hitchhiker. William Talman plays Emmett Myers, maybe has really what is probably the lead role in The Hitchhiker, but I'm sure at the time got relegated to supporting behind Edmund O'Brien. There's Jean Dielman with her son, played by Jan Decourt, but I think... Tell me if I'm wrong. It comes down to really trying to decide between Michael Higgins, potentially as Mr. Dennis in Barbara Loden's Wanda, or you have to look at one of maybe seven different options from Daughters of the Dust. Which one did you ultimately land on? Yeah, I did think long and hard about Michael Higgins in Wanda because uh, he was just, just such a such a great presence opposite Loden in particular in that movie kind of the Clyde to her Bonnie, right? But I, I, my pick had to come from Daughters of the Dust, appropriate here just coming off our discussion of that film. And, you know, chatting with Sam a little bit about this, I know he was especially taken with Barbara O. Jones as uh, Cousin Mary, and she is great. That scene where she shares her personal story with her judgmental family members, such a fiery combination of, of real pain and also defiance there. My pick, though, is going to be Alva Rogers as Eula. Eula is the young wife who is pregnant with another man's child. And as the film develops, to my mind, she kind of became the conscience of this family clan. That doesn't mean her answer about whether to leave or not is the right one. But what she calls them to consider, I think, is the conscience of the movie. And so her monologue that she gets on the beach, for me, 
is the film's most powerful moment. This is as the family members are squabbling, as they're often doing, and she calls them to throw off these shackles of shame that they, especially the women, have been carrying since the days of slavery and are now in some ways using as weapons against each other. Even though they're going up north, you don't think about being ruined too. You think you can cross over? To the mainland and run away from it? You're gonna be so sorry if I don't change your way of thinking before you leave this place. So this is an incredible moment of of pride and independence. It's passionately delivered by Alva Rogers, and that's that's where I eventually settled for my best supporting performance. Yeah, it's a great one, and it's funny. My first instinct and maybe I should just stick with it, was to go with, actually, Eula's husband, Eli, played by Adisa Anderson. I think he is so great here in his anger and his expressions of frustration over his fears about the unborn child and what he perceives as being taken away from him by this man who raped his wife. And also, he's one of the characters really struggling with this idea of moving off the island and going north. And that conflict is one that really resonated with me. But I still feel like, at the end of the day, <laughs> Daughters of the Dust is probably a film that belongs to Coralie Day mm. as Nana Pazant. And yeah, she's something. She really is. And Josh, a, a quick note this gets back to maybe the difficulty potentially of following. As a narrative, Daughters of the Dust, you mentioned Eli and Eula and her carrying the unborn child, the child that doesn't belong to Eli. But isn't that actually one of the things that's maybe a little bit up for interpretation or maybe even decided at some point? The fear is that that it's not Eli's baby, right? Yeah. So to your point, even on a second viewing, I'm not entirely sure. I think you're correct in assuming that she's been the victim of a rape, but I don't know you know, it could have been an affair as well. I, I, unless I miss something. No, I, I get it. I wrestled with that too. In either case, you know, obviously very different cases, but Eli's, the central struggle for him is that this child is not his own. I don't get the sense he's necessarily going to abandon Eula, though maybe no. that's in play, but he's real. like, what? who is this child and will he accept it? Which speaks to the scenes where the unborn child is reaching out towards him, you know, seeking him as a father. No, that's, that's well said. And maybe the only ambiguity, and to people who are more familiar with this film than either of us, they may say there is none, is whether or not ultimately that child does belong to him or not, or is his biological child. I agree with you completely on that being his central conflict for sure. Best lead performance. We've got a few more films maybe to choose from here, Josh, or maybe it was quite simple for you. You could look at Maya Darren herself from her shorts. Edmund O'Brien, as I mentioned, is Roy Collins in The Hitchhiker. In Daisies, you've got Marie One and Marie Two, Jitka Serhova and Ivana Karbanova. How about Delphine Seyrig as Jean Dielman or Barbara Loden as Wanda or... Probably not you, Josh, but someone could go with Giancarlo Giannini from Seven Beauties. 
Who is your pick? Well, you know where Lena Wertmuller would go. I mean, she can't get enough of Giannini. So that's my, right. My pick, though, I'm going to go a different direction. Yeah, I'll run through quickly a couple of those runners up. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed that a male actor would be in the running considering the context of this marathon, but I did consider William Tallman as a lead performance, okay. the killer in, in Lupino's The Hitchhiker. And, you know, just as she is interested in the trauma of his Emmett Myers, the trauma he inflicts and the trauma he suffers, I think Tallman's performance is attuned to that suffering as well, especially in those final moments. I thought about Darren too. Yeah. I mean, especially in at land, her performance was the defining element of that short for me, that experimental dance performance as this woman trying to really leave society behind and become one with nature. But it eventually did come down to Barbara Loden in the title role of Wanda or Delphine Sirig's title turn in Jean Dielman. And I went with Sirig. I mean, this forgotten mother and homemaker, it's a performance, as I talked about, small emotion, but exacting gestures, each one speaking volumes. And at the same time, somehow it's open enough of a performance uh, to let us cast our own feelings about her life, about our own domestic lives right onto her. Thinking about that scene in the cafe we talked about where she's taking a moment for herself and her face suddenly goes blank, you know, and, th- and then all of a sudden we kind of go to fill that blankness in. It's really, it's remarkable. So that that's where I went. It really is. And I almost went that same way, but I went the other direction, Josh, and I'm going to give Barbara Loden her due credit okay, for nice that balance. incredible turn as Wanda. We talked about it on the show that she somehow manages to almost appear like she's a non-professional actress, that somehow Barbara Loden, the director, found this woman found Wanda out in the world and put her on camera. It has that same almost documentary sense to it in some aspects of the filmmaking, but really it comes through more in terms of the immediacy of the performances and the authenticity of it. And that's there. But when she also has to deliver some of the more powerful scenes, you, you understand that she's someone with, the kind of accomplishments that Barbara Loden had and the kind of experience that she had, and she brings all of that to bear as Wanda. Where's your husband? What husband? Your husband. I guess he's got himself a real good wife by now. Got a real good wife. What about the kids? Kids. Yeah. I saw that picture in your wallet. Well, they're with him. Better off with him. And I'm just no good. <laughs> just no good. Our unique category for this marathon we settled on was the most subversive moment and I'm glad you made this suggestion, Josh. Maybe this is even what inspired it, or maybe you didn't recall, but I was looking back at my notes, and when we started this marathon, we got some help from longtime friend of the show, great critic, Melissa Taminga, out in Washington, and she used that word in her intro. She talked about Lupino's The Hitchhiker and the Maya Darren films in terms of their subversiveness. I think in her voicemail, she used that word twice, so appropriate that we would give out a burnt potato to that most subversive moment from all the films in the marathon 
What was your choice? Well, I thought about the breakdown that Edmund O'Brien's mechanic suffers in The Hitchhiker, because I think that's part of the movie's undermining of stoic masculinity. So even though Absolutely. Hitchhiker seems, you know, maybe the most familiar or conventional of these titles, it had those little touches in it. Wanda's rejection of her children in court in Wanda. I mean, think about great <laughs> choice. All the taboos that is breaking, right? Well, you just went from conventional masculinity, views of masculinity to right, breaking down a conventional view of femininity yes, and what a, a mother should be. For sure. Yeah. Uh the opening Daisies like montage of Seven Beauties. I'll give Seven Beauties a little love here. That was the highlight of that film for me. And I almost want to cheat and say that all of Jean Dielman, it's very form <laughs> You know, oh, making yeah. us sit in real time, yeah. stationary camera, no music. That kind of subverts the expectations of narrative, right? Um, and so you could say the whole film is subversive. But I did go with another one. And it does involve the preparation and eating of a meal, like so much of Jean Dielman does. It's one of the first dinner dates in Daisies. This is where Marie One, played by Jitka Serhova, she wolfs down her food to the horror of this leering guy who's who's paying for the meal. It's just, it's extremely funny, but also here the subversion is, you know, this patriarchal society's unspoken dinner date expectations. You know, this tried and true uh, rhythm that we're supposed to go through where the man takes the woman out to dinner, you know, and, and she'll behave herself, politely eat, not too much, and there's quid pro quo being unspoken. Well, they just blow that whole thing up at this dinner scene. And I definitely wanted to give Daisy some love in these awards. So I thought of this moment and, and I went with that for my most subversive one. I mean, there's a lot of formal experimentation going on here that you could consider subversive to the use of color, right. that their opening montage, of course. but I kind of like this one the best. Yeah. I almost considered several moments from Daisy's, but ultimately landed on another one. Josh, that involves dinner, and it's from near the end of the film, and it is the dinner party destruction that we get. I thought you might go there, yeah. I love this scene, and it it follows similar lines to what you were describing, right? I mean, you could put it in the same terms as far as these two women being the ones society would say if you were going to have this refined party, which in and of itself is this projection of bourgeois elegance that the whole movie is fighting against. But if these women were ever going to be part of it, it would either be as workers there, right, making sure all mm -hmm. the silverware is set up properly and that the plates are in order and the food's being served, or they would be the women expected to be hosting it and project a certain refinement. And instead, what do we get is total chaos, total destruction. Instead of setting it up, or making it run smoothly, they destroy everything in sight. I mean, you want to talk about subversive. This is a sequence where they destroy a chandelier and the movie then gives us a cut to them being dunked in water. You know, the, the imagery of witches, right? And they then destroy the whole thing. And then they do actually their societal duty. And they try to piece it all back together as if that's the yeah. thing. The work is what's going to make them happy. And that, that image for me, if you're going to pick... Within the most subversive moment, the best subversive image, it's it's all that dinnerware and the silverware all inelegantly put back on the table, pieced together, totally fragmented. That visual metaphor I thought was so potent. So we both went with daisies there. And that brings us to then the best scene or overall moment. And Josh, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I did the work for both of us, at least with making the choice. I think 
the single standout moment in a marathon that produced, as we said, three movies you label a masterpiece, give five stars to. The standout moment is Darren's dizzying dislocation, the sequence where we see her do what I'm not entirely sure, kind of go down the stairs Mm. with the camera twirling around her, right? She's hung up the phone and then her whole life is literally upended. And at one point she's going down the stairs as if she's, she's walking on her hands, but she's also kind of floating. It's crazy. And I mean, anytime you can beat Christopher Nolan to the filmmaking punch by what, 70 years. I mean, this is as mesmerizing as the hotel sequence in inception, um, completely of a piece with what else is going on in that film. And yeah, I'm with you scene of the marathon for sure. Okay. Well, are we going to be aligned on our best picture again? Tough choice for you here with three real contenders for me. It was not a tough choice. Jean Dielman, the Chantel Ackerman film, is undoubtedly the picture that I will most remember, the one that will leave me thinking about it the most. We didn't really get into it, but there was feedback from listeners, and I learned a few more things that informed aspects of the movie that I touched on during the review, and it allowed me to put things in a little bit of a clearer light. And I think in my letterboxed comments on Jean Dielman, I expounded on some of those things that were maybe totally ambiguous to me in terms of that first viewing and did come more into focus. But as you said, that entire film is a compilation of moments that add up to a subversive act in terms of challenging everything we believe about what womanhood should be, motherhood should be, what domestic life should look like or what society thinks it looks like and what cinema should and can be. Yeah, so Jean Dielman was the discovery for me. And I I think you're absolutely right in everything you say about it. It's one of those three that I would label as masterpieces. I do have Jean Dielman, Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon, and then... Dash's Daughters of the Dust, which I am going to make my pick for best picture and probably unfair. You know, if I if I went to watch all of these twice, who knows how things would shake out. But that's where I am here. And I just, you know, even more than Darren's work, I found it the most transporting. It's it's rooted in it's more rooted in reality, but somehow just as unreal in a good way as the stuff that that Darren is doing. And it remains, I think, for me, the series most singular journey And also, you know, I didn't name a subversive moment from it, you know, when we were doing that category, but really you could say it's subversive in its total lack of whiteness, which I think is, is a crucial hallmark. Not that the legacy, as you said, Adams of slavery haunts the picture. It's something that they reckoned with and and discussed, but there's not a white face in the movie. And so Mm. there's something subversive, sadly, about um, a film, even though it's an art house film uh, in the United States, being able to do that and tell its own story apart from that. So I think that's subversive. It's just a really special film. My favorite of the marathon. All right. You can see that complete list of our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon Awards and revisit all of our discussions, plus previous marathon discussions by visiting filmspotting.net and clicking on marathons at the top of the page. We do not yet know what our next marathon is going to be, probably going to come 
in the next year. We're obviously winding down with this year. We are going to have a decent collection of movies we're going to need to fit in here before the end of the year. And we do our top 10 movies of the year. So we're putting it off a little bit, probably start late January, maybe even early February. We would love your ideas. If you have any that you would love for us to get to any topics, any filmmakers that you know are blind spots for us, please do make a suggestion feedback at filmspotting.net. That said, we do have some options to consider. We'll throw out briefly. We could go back to Hollywood, classic Hollywood, Josh, and Nicholas Ray comes to mind as a filmmaker. We have talked about investigating further, but also coming out of our Betty Davis marathon, seeing some William Wyler, realizing there are a fair number of blind spots there. If we go the Hollywood route, is Wyler at or near the top of the list, you think? Probably. I, I you know, I, I've seen a couple, so there might be a repeat or two for me there, but I'm definitely not a completist, so that would be fruitful. But yeah, Nicholas Ray is a good option too. So I'd be excited for either of those. Douglas Sirk, another name we could throw into the mix. And we could go the incredible Hollywood actress route, formidable presence like Betty Davis and go Barbara Stanwyck, go the actress route again. That would be fun too. Okay. We would love to hear your thoughts on those picks or any other potential marathon topics. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is finally our show. It is. You can also send your feedback via social media, Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We are giving you a couple of options. Movie failures that you champion. Vote for your favorite. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, The Dark and the Wicked, a new horror film from the director of 2008's The Strangers, The Life Ahead. This is Sophia Loren returning to the screen in a film directed by her son, Eduardo Ponti. And on digital release, one of the movies that came up in my top five fall questions of the fall movie season, City Hall from legendary documentarian Frederick Weissman. That's available via the Gene Siskel Film Center's virtual cinema. We'll put a link to that in our notes over at filmspotting.net. Next week on the show, it is a David Lynch double feature, our 8 from 84 discussion of Dune, the only Dune talk, sadly, probably, that you're going to get this year, right? With the Denis Villeneuve remake or whatever you'd like to call it, Josh, not coming out in the calendar year 2020 and we're going to look back at the twin peaks pilot from 1990 a bit of blind tv cow spotting oh man you haven't seen it <laughs> i have i we're adore really it really mangling our terms now we really are film spotting is produced by golden joe de and sam van Halgren. without sam and golden joe this show would not go our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Andrew Bird. It comes from the new album Hark. More information is at andrewbird.net. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Why shouldn't we look at ourselves up there? Who cares about the fifth Earl of Bastrop and Leggy? Oh, God. Shut up. Shut up. Josh or Sam, do not use this outtake. I will kill you. It's only the first line. Shut up. You've got okay. a monologue coming up, sir. I'm not the professional that you are. Just wait. Okay. Why don't, why don't we start at the beginning? And, Hit me again. And take two. <laughs> what did you call her? We should have left that in. Lady Higgin, what, what in bottom? Like I kept saying leggy instead of lady. No, it was leggy Higginbottom. Leggy Higginbottom. Higginbottom has Hidden to bottom. become a character name somewhere. I should have just stayed with it. <laughs> oh, that was good. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.